brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a guest named Gianni Kovacevic. It's taken me a, a while to learn how to pronounce that precisely. He is the author of My Electrician Drives a Porsche, and he is an angel and venture investor specializing in energy and alternative technologies. Uh, he also just took a Tesla and drove from Toronto to Boston to Florida, uh, all around the United States, uh, ended up uh, in California and went to the Tesla plant. That's where his uh, trip uh, finished up. And we chatted about everything from the new technologies, what's taking place in China, uh, alternative energies, the rise and continued demand for copper and, and why oil is probably not your best long-term investment. Uh, if you are at all interested in automobiles, electricity, venture investing, uh, or alternative energy, I think you'll find this to be a fascinating conversation. Without any further ado, my chat with Gianni Kovacevic. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Gianni Kovacevic. He is the author of the book, My Electrician Drives a Porsche, Investing in the Rise of the New Spending Class. He is also a uh, venture investor as well as resident of Vancouver, Canada, speaks multiple languages, English, German, Italian, Croatian, just four, you're only stopping at four. Um, uh, Gianni, welcome to Bloomberg. It's so nice to be in New York, Barry. So so let's jump right into who you are and what you do. When, when people ask you, what do you do? How do you answer that question? I am a curious investor. Mm -hmm. I follow trends. I try to be, um, you know, I consider myself to be a value investor. So I'm not really a trader. I want to look at deep value. And effectively, I don't want to invest in the story on page one. As my friend Don Cox would say, that's the efficient market. I want to invest in the story on page 16 that's headed to page one. So I'm trying to make a career out of investing on page 16 stories. So, so what's your background? How did you get into this line of business? I'm from Vancouver, Canada. And what software is to Seattle is what, let's say, energy, commodities, natural resources are to Vancouver, Canada. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my friends, we grow up and they become stockbrokers, other ones become geologists, engineers, and just, you end up, you know, entering the workforce and there it is. It's so important to you know, basically Canada and that part of, uh, of our country particularly that you're just indoctrinated into it. No different than someone from, as I say, Seattle or San Francisco would get involved in software computers. And, and for those people who've never been in Vancouver, one of my favorite cities in North America and absolutely beautiful. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the entrepreneurial spirit, which very much colors uh, your book, your writing, what, what you focus on. Uh, how do you become an entrepreneur in a place like Vancouver? I know a lot of people up there who ultimately ended up moving to Seattle, New York, San Francisco, even Los Angeles. What What's life like in Vancouver for a, a, a entrepreneur who might be more interested in things like software and technology than, as, as one friend calls it, sticks and stones, timber and, and uh, minerals? 
Well, that's where my heart beats is supporting these things that I would say that you don't want to give society what they think they need or what they think they want. You want to give them what they do not have and what they what they don't already know that they want. We've seen examples from the from Henry Ford in the car, from the iPhone and Steve Jobs. The, the old joke is don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where it's going to be. Absolutely. And so when you're looking at that as an investor, I'm looking for people that are listening to the music. They're not getting confused by the noise. Mm-hmm. A classic page 16 story or stories as investors. So entrepreneurship is, you know, people and groups that want to, you know, buy into that. You, you can see it. Like Warren Buffett would say, when something is so obvious, you don't even need a pencil and paper to figure it out. It's like, you know, we've all heard of those ideas that even that, that internet protocol or that app or that gizmo in the past, you know, 20, 30 years, you just say, wow, that'll succeed. It's just so intuitive. And I think when you're creating these visions as an entrepreneur, you're also managing, you know, it's a lot of psychology, a lot of lot of sort of relationship building. The bigger an organization gets, you end up managing all these personalities. So you want to find those mavericks that A, create the product that people want and need in the future, and they have the ability to stick handle that business as it grows. You know, so how do you you find that? Well, it takes a long time. I think you need, you know, years and years and years of experience. You lose money. You you, you win with this guy. You win with that guy. And, and you know, after maybe 15 or 20 years of experience, hopefully you can narrow that down a little bit to have more winners and losers. Don't we run the risk? Let me push back a little bit on you. Don't don't we run the risk of a little hindsight bias? Um, I can't begin to tell you how many things that are wildly successful today and everybody thinks, oh, sure, of course that was a winner. When they were first rolled out, uh, people looked very askance at it. My favorite story is Fred Smith, the guy who founded FedEx. It was a graduate school paper, and I think he got a D. And the professor said, why would anybody pay a premium for overnight delivery when you have the post office? Yeah. So so how much of, of us looking at these things as obvious is a little bit of hindsight bias as opposed to, or, or asked differently, how can we really identify these things in advance when no one really has a clue what's going to catch on or what's not? The answer is the short answer. As you know, it's difficult. If it was easy, you know, we'd all, we'd all be billionaires, you know, right. and if it was easy, they would call it snowboarding. You know, it's something you learn in a few days. It's not. I don't think snowboarding e- is easy. <laughs> when a trend gets underway, let's liken it to a parade. It's very hard to create a parade. Mm-hmm. But when you see it and when it's obvious, you know, you can, it's going on, it's, you want to jump into that parade. You don't need to be the lead float. You, need, you just need to be in it. You know, you need to understand. And because you have experience, meaning you've, you've kicked the tires, you don't go one day to the next and say, oh, you know, um, Uber is going to be something that's going to be important to the world. I think if you're, you have to sort of understand how mobile technology evolved and you don't come in one day to the next, it happened, you know, with the iPhone in 2007, mm-hmm. the app started to be developed. So already by 2010, 2011, 2012, hey, you used it the first time you said, holy smokes, this, this works. I get it. Uber's of course been a private company. So most people out there can't invest or don't have the ability to invest in those things. You know, and you can go on and on and on. And I think we, we talk a little bit about, you know, trend building and the way people can get themselves versed on this stuff is subscribe to bloggers, newsletter writers, go to really high quality conferences, get the collective opinion of many people and their ideas, and you yourself will come up with your own sort of trends that you can follow. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Gianni Kovacevic. He is the author of My Electrician Drives a Porsche, which is a look at investing in the rise of the new spending class. 
And let's talk a little bit about uh, driving in cars. And, and you just completed a very interesting trip. You went cross-country in a Tesla. How did that come about? Yeah, the my book has nothing to do with fast cars. It mm -hmm. has everything to do with, as we say in the subtitle, investing in the rise of the new spending class. And it's this story about a young electrician and his family doctor. So it's all about the electricity. It's all about the electricity. And I So so let's let's we're gonna talk about this in a few moments. Let's talk about the cross country country trip and how that worked powered by electricity. First, what made you think of doing that? We wanted to do a special book tour. I wanted to have something that's not your, you know, you go to 10 or 12 cities. So I figured, hmm, I can showcase to the world, in my opinion, the future is now with respect to electric cars. So you have mm -hmm. to exaggerate these things. You know, you have got to go from, you know, around the entire nation. I was also able to visit more cities. I was able to talk to more people and I was able to engage with them, be it, be it government, be it investors, be it regular society and show them physically that the future is now. We can do this now. You can drive an electric car day to day, across the country, whatever you wish. So where'd you begin? Let, let, let's trace your path. And I rem you were tweeting this out as you were traveling. What, what did you, where did you launch from? We started in Toronto, Canada mm -hmm. at a major conference. It was one of the focus points there where people would come and I had all the sort of decoration on the car and I told them what I'm gonna be doing. And I drove to Boston with a very skeptical German journalist, I will add, someone who did not believe this would be so comfortable. And I went from uh, Boston all the way down to Pensacola, Wait, Florida. Toronto to Boston. To Pensacola. How long, did that, how long did that leg take? It's 600 miles, just under 600 miles. It took me 10 hours. 10 hours. So yeah. you drive drive a couple of hours. How, how uh, let's say you drive 200 miles, about the range of a Tesla 250. Yeah. It's really getting to, to between the superchargers if you're doing cross-country travel. So, mm -hmm. and they're about between 150, 250 miles apart, mm -hmm. all the superchargers connecting all the major cities today. Today. Today, already so, there. So, so you, you were able to go from Toronto to Boston. So you drove uh, 200 miles to the first To charger. Buffalo. How long did it take to charge, that, charge it up to go to the next charger? The computer tells you how much time you need to get to the next supercharger with a cushion, mm -hmm. meaning you have extreme air conditioning on or extreme heating on or what right. have you, traffic. It's about 30 minutes. Between That's any, not terrible. Yeah, you sit, you have lunch. The time, and, and the time of breakfast, the time of coffee. Uh, some cities, it's only 15 minutes, mm -hmm. you know, because sometimes they're, they're sandwiched maybe 100, 130, 140 Toronto, miles Toronto. Buffalo and from Buffalo, that's a haul to Boston from Buffalo, isn't it? You go in Dewey's. Yeah, you do. You do uh, Albany and just south of Rochester and and uh, into uh, so Springfield was, and into Boston. So it's a day from Toronto to Boston. Well, let's reverse engineer it because of the, the German journalist. He, I said, we're going to stop when you're tired, when you need to use the restroom, when you're hungry. And by the time we got to Boston, we were not 15 minutes inconvenienced. Because really? you have to stop. You have to right. stop and eat. As you got to stop and do a restroom. So right. now this is curated. It, the computer tells us where we're going to stop. And you have a P.F. Chang there. Or you have, you know, exactly what you're going to do. There's no curious where you get off the freeway. Oh, we're eating at, you know, this fast food joint or that fast right. food joint. You kind of know exactly what you're up against when you get there. He was shocked from a German perspective, which they're maybe a little bit more skeptical. Right. Although they're huge consumers of, of alternates like wind is, is all, you fly into Germany, half the country looks like it's covered in wind farms. All right, so Boston, I, I actually met you when you went from Boston to New York, and then from New York down to Florida. Now, normally, that's a good day and a half drive. How long does it take you to get from New York to Florida? Well, we took the slow route. I stopped 
in all the cities I was doing book events, mm-hmm. uh, about two days per city. So I would come in, I would the, the car would be charged before I came into the city. Mm-hmm. I have enough range, 230, 40 miles to do all my nonsense around the city. Of course, when I'm right. sleeping, the car's charging. Right. More and more hotels and businesses are now catering to people to have these chargers. destination chargers, mm-hmm. not the super fast ones, but the ones that charge at around- But overnight is four, 40 miles an hour you get. Each hour right. you're parked, you get about th- you know, between so 30 and So five hours, you're fully miles. charged, six hours, exactly. you're fully charged. Exactly, and you move on. And this is, I liken this to the, the charging network system and we can get into some other things that are happening in the, with the incumbents but it's really like the, the the model t was perfected on the assembly line and started rolling out in october of 1908 so it's really like long a, before there was a network of gas stations. exactly so we're in, and we can do things a lot faster today and there's an army of people that will and are doing this it's not one company it's not just tesla anymore and and by you, the way did tesla have anything to do with your trip or were they just a lucky beneficiary of your uh idea yeah, no, the, we did not ask for permission with Tesla. I bought the car. Mm-hmm. I sent Elon my book, which mm-hmm. the title may shock people, but of course the character, the doctor in the book buys a Tesla and adopts the Tesla way of life. And we, what they're now doing with merging or attempting to merge Solar City and Tesla, calling it the Tesla lifestyle, a year and a half ago, I was already saying that in my book, that this is the future. People want the package. They want that package where they want to be completely independent from grid, from fossil fuels, call it what you will, in their homes for all their transportation and energy. Now I'm going to push back on that independence claim and that green claim in a little bit. Sure. But you ended up at the Tesla factory, right? Is that where you uh, finished? Yeah, I ended up on May 4th. And one of the, I believe, founders and directors of Tesla, Ira Ehrenprice, was having his global energy conference that day. Mm Mm-hmm. Was that part of the plan or just a lucky coincidence? It was kind of a lucky coincidence. So I got my factory tour on the day of the conference. I, you know, parked my car right there. And it was really a a day of modern energy where a lot of these people, a lot of these thought leaders were together. And I got my tour of the, of the Tesla factory on that day. And it was, yeah, it was, it was incredible. It's a, there's a tectonic shift going on. And until you've, you know, really understood this from all angles, Mm -hmm. how we create service, buy, sell, you know, cars in general, make the parts feed into it. Yeah, the world is going through a tectonic shift, in my opinion. How many cities did you work your way through, uh, all told? It was 25 official cities, but I stopped in, oh, probably 100. And when you you count in the lesser towns, and I stopped in a lot of universities, wanted to talk to students, Mm -hmm. and just just park the car, and it's a talking point. What was the network of of charging stations like? Did you ever find yourself... Uh, how does the car find it? Do you ever find yourself, gee, where am I going to find one of these things? What What's that network like? Yeah, it's it's comprehensive already, which is actually quite shocking. The, the fact that they only started a few years ago. You tell the computer what two cities you want to connect, and it says exactly where you need to charge and how long. So it's kind of a coup what Tesla's done already. And so that's the city interconnection, the superchargers. The and secret now, sounds like it's the software as well as the network. For sure, the GPS. And then you have the destination chargers, which are going to be installed by the millions by people that own businesses. Mm-hmm. So they're going to pay Elon Musk cash money for this destination charger, which an electrician can install in three or four or five hours, which means you can connect any lifestyle point, lifestyle point A to lifestyle point B in any city, which means they've solved the puzzle. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Gianni Kovacevic. He is a investor, entrepreneur, environmentalist, and author of the book, My Electrician Drives a Porsche. Uh, let's talk a little bit about 
Realistic environmentalism. What does it mean to be a realistic environmentalist? A realistic environmentalist is someone who is pragmatic. I would call I would call them an algebraist. An algebraist. So, so if we're looking at the challenges that are surrounding energy around the world, where if people want to make changes with the way we create, transfer, and utilize energy, that's fine. You want to make policy? That's also fine. You want to create that investment vehicles? That's great. But you have to look at the other side of the equation because when you take fossil fuels out of that equation, there has to be something on the other side. You can't just wave your hand around and say, let's not use oil anymore. Let's no, no more coal. So if you understand that, a realistic environmentalist is someone who looks at all the the variables and he's in the middle. He's neutral. He's a solutionist or she is a solutionist. So I want to understand, support, invest in all the elements that factually make that possible. We could call a reduction in CO2 emissions, greenhouse, mm. greenhouse gas emissions, whatever it is. And that is a very large arena on, on the products, materials, building blocks that factually make a reduction in CO2 emissions possible. So, so let's talk a little bit about vehicles like the Tesla. Um, as, as a person who enjoys cars, likes horsepower, is not afraid of uh, internal combustion engines, I always have two issues with, with, in general, the Priuses and Teslas of the world. And by the way, I love the Tesla. I think it's a beautiful car, really well-made, tremendous design. But here are the two issues I have. First, depending on the part of the country you're in, you're charging off the electric grid, and very often that is coal-fired electricity, which means you're not spewing junk out of your tailpipe, but you are spewing junk out of the the source of the electricity. So why don't I have you respond to that before I go on to the second one? Yeah, that's an important question. And I, I liken that to, we don't live in Staticville. We, society lives in a place called Progressville. In 2007, 2008, around 45% of America's primary electricity was generated by coal. Just in the past year, natural gas has surpassed coal as the mm. primary fuel source. So coal is now around 30%, 31% and falling. By 2020, it'll be 21, 22% of, of America's primary uh, electricity. So already it is the minority fuel source. Natural gas and the others, nuclear, renewables, what have you, are around 70% of America's fuel source and, and falling. So eventually this will continue to fall. And remember, we're not gonna go away from coal uh, because of policy. Assets that are deemed uneconomic are assets that are stranded. We have so much natural gas. Massive supply. It Lots burns of much cleaner. And, and here's the thing that everybody forgets. You run a pipeline to an electrical generation plant, and that's it. You're done. There's no trucking, shipping. There's no... Uh, think about what it takes to yeah. move all that coal by rail, by whatever means. That's got to be really expensive, Nat gas is clearly going to be the winner in, in the electrical generation um, universe, at least for the foreseeable future. And, and we see that uh, the data recently showed that more people work in solar today than work yeah. in coal in yeah, the United sure. States. That's an amazing stat. The second um, criticism I've heard, and I don't know how accurate this is, uh, is that when you look at uh, things like the lithium batteries and all the rare earth metals, and unique elements that go into making a car like a Prius or a Tesla, uh, there's a lot of really, if you go all the way upstream in the manufacturing process, there's a lot of really bad manufacturing steps that take place to 
you know, strip mine and, and get access. This this is from not necessarily very accessible parts of the world. How do how do we respond to, to that criticism that, hey, this creates as much heavy metal pollution as it saves in carbon? Well, the, the real math, and if you look at the, um, the Society of Concerned Scientists, they basically say that the breakthrough or the, the break-even is about 19,000 miles. Mm-hmm. So it is true to create a full electric car, there is some, there's a little bit extra CO2 emissions to create the car. According to their math, at the 19,000 mile point, it's it's break even. But 18 months into it, more or less. Something like that. But it's, it goes deeper than this because nothing comes for free, Barry. Mm-hmm. Nothing comes for free. People have to make a choice. And that's and where I, where I put my hat comes from. of being a realistic environmentalist. Just tell me what you like. You know, what's the policy? What's the will of the people? Where's What's government want? Where are the investors? Where's the propensity to make this stuff possible? Because nothing comes for free. That's the trade If you want coal-fired electricity, if you want to use gasoline, if you want to keep searching for fossil fuels, move it, refine it, move it again, transport it, sell it, repeat every week, okay. But that's, I don't believe that's where progress bell is. We are going to go in the long course of time because it's, it's the future. It's just the smart way to do it. And we should stop focusing on the cars that you drive 30 minutes a day. The, the cars we need to electrify are the taxis, the FedEx vehicles, the urban buses. We can make them electric. And we know that because the world's largest automobile market has accelerated those programs to electrify urban transport. Those that, are the cars we have to get off. China. We're talking, talking China. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Gianni Kovacevic. He's the author of My Electrician Drives a Porsche, Investing in the Rise of the New Spending Class. I was surprised that the book was really more of a parable than your standard nonfiction book. So let, let's start out with the basic premise of, of that, that parable. Um, uh Tell me about Doc Anderson and and who he represents. By the way, which character in the book are you? Uh, I would be the electrician. I, that was my guess. Obviously, yeah. <laughs> so a young electrician goes to his doctor and uh, tell tell the story. You, it takes place in Seattle, so this world capital of sort of technology and computers are one of them, and the there's a 58 year old doctor, a baby boomer. So I wanted to have that that demographic represented Mm -hmm. and a millennial gen x if you will electrician and he's helping his doctor renovate on a saturday and he just asks the doctor how do you baby boomers think how do you invest what are you following he leaves the doctor goes outside and his neighbor says who's that my electrician the neighbor says your electrician drives a porsche the doctor goes out of his mind how's this possible how is this possible? How can this young working class fellow, you know, spend so much money on a lavish gift like that? Comes back next Saturday. And he says, well, I, I stopped working as an electrician about 10 years ago. But because of all the building blocks I learned and the trends I followed, I am now an investor full time. I take it seriously. And he, he reads these things like a financial soap opera daily, weekly. He goes to conferences. He meets with people. He wants to be a contrarian investor. So he is searching for page 16 stories, which will become page one. And of course, with the subtitle, Investing in the Rise of the New Spending Class, they go and explore this army of new consumers, people that are not rich, they're no longer emerging, they're not poor, and all the implications of how they're changing the world and the opportunity that they represent. So one of the things you discuss is investing in human aspiration. 
Explain that what that is first, and then how can we invest in human aspiration? We often forget, uh, you know, what it's like to have you know salary escalation. I, I come from Vancouver, Canada, and I think it's pretty much the same around North America. You have not had more spending power in probably 30 years. You know, yeah, your salary might have went up a little bit, but you factor in so inflation. Does it cost a living, of you course. know, you're not making a lot of money. When my parents came from Croatia in 1973, you know, that was a very special time. You had rampant salary escalation. I remember seeing these pay slips of my dad, 1980, 81. He was working in North of Canada. He was making $1,000 a week back then, Barry. You could buy two Cadillac cars every year. You could buy a house for cash money. You cannot do that anymore. People in emerging markets have had rampant salary escalation. Okay, again, I'm not, I, I, can, I can concede they're not wealthy, but someone in China 30 years ago, 25 years ago, might've made two or 3,000 US dollars a year. Well, the averages now in the Eastern provinces, I, I speak of Shanghai, Tianjin, Beijing, they're making 18, 20,000 dollars a year on average today. That's a huge uptick from where they were a decade Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. So what does that mean? That means they watch television every day. They have air conditioning. They drive a car. They have almost the same economic footprint you and I have. They have a deluxe diet. And so that's coming with ramifications. Now, within that is tremendous opportunity. And it always comes back to probably one primary thing, energy, the insatiable appetite for that energy. So we need to understand as investors, particularly because of this, you know, propensity to have climate change, how we create, transfer and utilize what I call energy. So let me digress a little bit. Uh, solar has is, is theoretically a, a source of infinite uh, energy. How come solar as a technology has never had that breakthrough that allowed it to be ubiquitous, practically free, or certainly really cheap? That that that's something that I've always found perplexing. Yeah, because it's technology and it doubles. Microchip, for example, doubled every eighteen months for decades. The learning curve on solar has had seven doublings in 15 years. We are now at a point where it is commercially viable. Solar works at night. We capture thermal heat through with fluid. So that means when the sun goes down, it works at night. We are now able, and you're going to see this, this is going to, we're going through a tectonic shift, by the way, in energy, and it'll take a while to articulate that. We don't have the time right now. But you, the way we desalinate water, typically in the Middle East and places around the equator. California soon uh, in the not distant future. They used fossil fuels to do that. It Mm -hmm. takes a lot of pressure or a lot of heat. Well, guess what? My friends in, in Germany are working on processes now where you do it with solar power. It has arrived. It is commercially viable. It is now a line item including wind. Wind has had in the past 15 years, four doublings. Mm-hmm. So we, when you when you look at this and you see how the changes, I mean, where's the big investment happened in the past 24 months? Not in fossil fuel electricity generation. It's all been on the, the lion's share is now going into, into these renewables across the board. And because there's this army of people working on this, the prize is so big. Then we get into the energy storage and on and on. It's, it's we're going through probably a once in a multi-generational tectonic, shift on how we create energy, which is going to impact how we transfer energy, because there's only three ways to do that. Pipelines, railroads and ships, and electricity cables or microgrid. Well, the future of energy transfer is going to be with electricity, not with the not with the incumbents. And then the way we utilize it, we're not going to be using fossil fuels to utilize energy. When you look at that, I always tell people oil is energy. Energy without fossil fuels is electricity. And electricity demands what? 
we want to invest in those things. We want to invest in engineering. We want to invest in in the in, in the in the the technique the techniques, the design, the building blocks, and across the board. So so let's talk about something that a theme that comes up over and over again in the book: China copper people. You're you're alluding to copper. Tell us about copper and and why is it the green metal? There are four major energy commodities. You've got coal, natural gas, and oil. The fourth one is copper. It's always been relevant. In the future, and I'm going to suggest something very strong. I don't believe, in my opinion, that we are ever going to have another 25 or 30% increase in demand for oil. We are now at a point we have to start talking about terminal decline. Coal's already finished. I think coal's already on it. It's a twilight industry. Innovation, adoption, technology are not the friends of the oil industry. You innovate, you use less oil. You adopt, you use no oil. Technology, the way we extract oil is a game changer. But when you look at the fourth commodity, the energy commodity, copper, there is conclusively going to be 30% new customer base. When you create and, and utilize greener and cleaner energy, Barry, it takes 500% more copper. In the case of offshore wind, 1,000% more copper. And there's been no fracking moment for the copper industry, the way we extract copper. No one's building copper mines. So we have to choose, putting on our algebra hat again, if we're going to take away fossil fuels, we have to recognize and appreciate the science in this equation. It takes copper to make green energy possible, not by 50%, 400, 500, 600% power of magnitude. So I think that when you look at the winners and losers, People want to follow and understand the copper industry, not for the next three months or six months, because traditionally copper has been tethered to the price of oil. But when we go forward the next two, five, seven, ten years, things are going to change, tectonic shift. So let's talk a little bit about copper usages and how the technology surrounding its extraction might change. Obviously, anything electric is using copper wiring. I don't even think we're allowed to use aluminum wiring in homes anymore. That used to be an alternative, a cheaper alternative. Um, what is the main application of copper in the the energy grid? It's a good question, and we, we always got to be careful. I mean, I, I read this stuff like Harlequin Romance, Barry, so, you know, other people don't. So let me try to make this more interesting for people that know nothing about this stuff. They... Experts will tell you that if we adopt high-efficiency energy systems, we can reduce CO2 emissions by 1.25 gigatons. So if I translate that, that's like taking 500 million cars off the road. So what is a high-efficiency energy system? Well, you make motors more efficient. 46-47% of America's electricity is consumed by motors from the smallest to the biggest. So Meaning you, anything from a vacuum cleaner to air conditioning uh, across the elevators across the board. You know, motors use the bulk of the of, of electricity. So you make them more modern, more efficient by using a copper rotor. Transformers, you don't use aluminum windings, you use copper windings. There is across society where if we incre we increase the amplitude of copper, you reduce electricity consumption, which means you need to generate less electricity. It's true that aluminum is a substitute in many cases, and it, and it will continue to be part of the solution. You know, copper will not be the be-all, end-all. But we will, for efficiency, use more copper. We talk about a wind park. Now, if you're going to build a 200-megawatt power plant, which is a small coal-fired plant, or you say, you know what, let's do a 200-megawatt wind farm. My friend Ross Beatty just installed a 200-megawatt project in Shannon, Texas. You need 65 you know, three and a half megawatt wind turbines. Each head, it's a generator is what mm -hmm. it is, has almost 2,000 pounds of copper. 
the wow. step-up transformer. You need to collect all that power to one central location and then send it off. Cable it off. Send right. it off to the grid. You also have to arrest the lightning. You know, it's very deluxe, very expensive, uh, you know, from a copper perspective, electricity to build. But once it's done, you've got energy now for 10, 20, 30 years. Now, we will address other things like curtailment, which means getting the power out to people that are using it and what have you. But this is early, early days and it's only going to get more and more as a, as a percentage of power generation. So Gianni, if people want to find your writings, where's the best place for them to, to look to uh, learn more about this? Well, my book is it's all, at all the U.S. airports, and people can find, find it on Amazon pretty easily. And I Twitter once in a while. I think I go through periods of being more or less busy, but my Twitter handle is at Realistic Enviro. And then people can also uh, source that to my personal website. Which is? realisticenvironmentalist.com. If you enjoy these conversations, be sure and check out our podcast extras where we continue the conversation. Check out my daily column on bloomberg.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry. Welcome back to the podcast portion of our show. Uh, Gianni, thank you so much for doing this. There's, there's so much stuff I missed that we really have to go back to some of our early questions and, uh, and, and plow through it before I get to my favorite questions. Um, and, and we'll also talk cars a little bit. Um, it's funny. Your electrician drives a Porsche. My uh, butcher drives a Porsche. <laughs> I, I was picking up some stuff for a barbecue, and I... I wasn't thinking I put the keys uh, down on the, and I have far too many keys and far too many cars. And he sees the little, he sees the little automobile shaped key and he goes, oh, well, I have the same car. Oh, really? What do you, what do you have? I have a Panamera. I'm like, oh, uh, that that's interesting. I drove one up at Monticello Raceway and I love the car, he says. He just couldn't stop raving it. So your electrician drives a Porsche. My butcher drives a Porsche, which I think is is pretty uh, pretty hilarious. Um, let's talk a little bit about Tesla. Um, you've had the car for how long? Bought the car in December. And and what what's your take on it? What what do you love? What do you what do you think they need to do better? I've owned a lot of cars in my in my time, and I've had multiple Porsches. I had a Ferrari 360, a BMW M3, and I recently just sold my Audi A8L, and it is the best car I've ever owned. It's that, rolling that's technology. What, that's what Consumer Reports said. Although I will tell you, that M3 is really a fun car. Different horses for different courses. For sure. You know, for sure. so it depends on what you're doing. You know, but if you're to have, and I ask this question. So I'm I'm off to Europe tomorrow, and I'm going to be with my friend who lives in Monaco. He has about 15 cars. Mm-hmm. Doesn't own a Tesla. Yeah. But then you asked a tough question. I said, Yeah, but hold on a second. If you had could only have one car. Which it had to be. take your kids to school, had to be fast, had to be comfortable, had to... Had to look good. It's a pretty good single car to have. I mean, it covers all the bases. You're not going to go hunting to Wyoming with it. But other than that, it pretty much covers everything. Uh, I thought when they released the 90 SD with Insanity Mode, I thought that was a game changer because it essentially said, look, nobody's going to be drag racing against Ferraris and, and Lamborghinis, although go to YouTube and you can find Sam. Teslas beating them. Um, but it basically said to me, the technology now exists that whatever automobile application you want to try and, and 
use this technology towards, there's nothing this doesn't do. This can beat a Ferrari in speed. It's comparable to an SUV in in terms of, of comfort and space. And it that really shifted my perspective about electric cars because it was no longer sort of a hobbyist gadget. It's, oh no, this is technology and we could tune it to all different applications. I know they originally started with their sort of uh, Lotus uh, adapted version, but that insanity mode made me think, well, why not skin a Tesla with a really sexy looking body and compete with the Ferraris, Lamborghinis, and, and even the Ford GTs of the world I think there's an audience for that. Is is that in the future of Tesla in any way, shape, or form? They've got an offering right now, which is coming out with. We all know what they have already. They got so the, they have the the ninety, which is the the, the sedan, the S. They call right. it the X, which is the SUV. Right. The three is which coming. Which is really, by the way, the X is really interesting looking. There's someone in my neighborhood has it. It's this sort of Woody Allen sleeper bulbous thing, but it's. Interesting looking. It's not like what the hell is that? It's oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and of course, the the doors, which they're called. What what did they rename the doors? It's not the gullwing doors. It's the yeah, falcon yeah, wing falcon or something wing, like yeah, that. Yeah. They're really an interesting little gimmick. But it's an enormous expanse of space inside. Yeah, I'm. I'm. A, what they've done to rattle this industry. Let's pretend we're the incumbent automotive manufacturers for a moment. And if you go back a few years, they used you know say, well, no one's going to want to buy these things, and then there's no very dismissive. There's, there's no there's no infrastructure. You know, it'll take forever to do the infrastructure. This what was a little company was able to build an infrastructure network in less than three years. That's amazing. I mean, shame on you. I say to all the incumbents, how could you be so lazy? And now it's going to affect their businesses. Now they all have been rolling out. Their own internal electrical division, the EV vehicles, slowly but carefully, because the, the their problem is they're beholden to what is a franchise network. They, it's very difficult to, to cannibalize your own business. It's the baby that's going to eat you. They need to start like other technology companies have done. They don't want to become blockbuster video or Kodak film. We know that, right? And we know Apple that the, really has done a great job of letting each new technology. You can't really buy a new iPod anymore because the technology of the SD chips now, uh, what used to be a $500 iPod with 100 megs of or 100 whatever it is, gigs of storage, you can now buy a chip for $12 and you can put all that music on a chip and most the new cars, you could just plug in that SD and you don't need that anymore. But up until that point, they were very good at cannibalizing themselves. Each new version was faster smaller, more storage, and cheaper, the automobile companies don't think like that, do they? They're, they have to put a siren on these programs, and I believe they do. A I, siren. Meaning real quick. They don't have 10 years. Because here's, here's how I see this playing out. Now, I follow this for a long time. And I, I know some of the companies a little bit more intimately because I know some of the larger shareholders and such. Mm -hmm. And we've seen now the front page story, of course, is Volkswagen. They've had the so-called settlement with the EPA, $14.7 billion. Comes what? in multiple tiers, not what? the least of which is a $2 billion investment in this infrastructure that can be used by other people. What What is a few billion dollars amongst friends? It's uh, $15 billion. Yeah, $15 billion, exactly. And then the, the, these fines don't even shock people anymore. But, but the business is going to shock people because what I've seen happen, remember, the, the incumbents have this franchisee system, the parts that feed into this 
car, which is of course then serviced for 10 or 15 years right. afterwards, the average internal combustion engine car has 80 parts. The average electric car has 20. So what have we seen happen? What keeps eking its ugly head up? The plug-in hybrid, Barry. You get a bit of range, range anxiety. People think they, oh, just to comfort you. Mm -hmm. Now you have a hundred major components in the car. So four, five, six, seven years later, do I want to be servicing a plug-in hybrid? No, thank you. But hold on, it gets deeper Isn't than this. Isn't that a transitional technology? I mean, I mean, it's I, range anxiety, which is a fear for the consumer. But that's temporary. Which doesn't exist. I've I drove across America. I have more experience than probably, you know, all, almost of, everyone. Right. Weekend, day, night, village, city to city. You don't need it. You can get to isn't any that range lifestyle anxiety, point. Isn't that just a until people understand the technology, until they become familiar with it. Look, the reality is I, I drive three miles to the train station in the morning and I drive not three minutes to the train station in the morning, three minutes home on the weekend. Occasionally I go out to the Hamptons. It's 75 miles each way, 100 miles each way. Occasionally I'll, I'll go upstate or I can't remember the last time I got in the car. And I actually can remember. I, I had, had an event up at Cornell which I don't think is 200 miles from here. And if and if it is, it's pretty close. So maybe I would have had to stop for lunch and charge up for a little bit. But most people's driving, uh, the range anxiety is, is a artificial fear, and it just takes a little experience and I a little to, to get by that. Couldn't agree more, which is why, in my opinion, the whole plug-in hybrid thing, all this engineering towards it and all this build-out is going to blow up in all their faces. Is it? The, but I always think these companies like GM's original vault with the plug-in hybrid technology was a transitional technology. And now their new car, the Bolt, is really the first low-cost, mass-produced, all-electric that's going to be out. It's actually going to beat the Tesla Model 3 to market. It's supposed to be out this summer. And reasonable thirty something thousand dollars, that's also a game changer. But who's going to be who's who are the new people in town? The 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 technologically advanced companies that are going to be coming out with their own electric car. It's pretty hard for you know other companies to sort of um, disrupt any more technologies. So I believe the automotive industry is getting disrupted. They're not going to make a hybrid car. They're going to make, a believe, this the most technologically advanced vehicle, which will be electric. When you get into whole ride share, I think those cars have to be electric for purposes of servicing. When and you what say have ride you. share, what do you mean? Like the um... cars that are owned by a big corporation, they might have two thousand, three thousand all over the city, and you just rent it per the minute. And that is going to be increasingly, I think, more electric as as we as we arrive. What about the Ubers of the future? Uber the future, self-driving cars. I mean, that that's something that we'll, we'll tackle 5, 10, 15 years down the road. I think. You think it's that far away? A lot of counties, towns, cities, states are going to say, you know what, you did it. You still have to have a driver in the car. You know, which is for, for that, who knows, either for jobs or for safety. It's You're still going to have to have a driver there. Buses and different things, I think, are, are maybe a little bit different. I take the plane to the train to go to JFK. That is a robotic tram, electric tram from Jamaica to JFK Airport. There's nobody driving those. They're fully automated. They've been on operating. its own track, right? Right, on its own track. Yeah. But there's a series of them. They go to the airport. They circle the airport. They come back. They, there's six stops along the way. It's fully automated. Uh, that looks like that's the future of transportation. Yeah. The question becomes, how soon can Tesla produce a fairly self-driving car? Well, self-driving is something that... I, I, 
I just don't, right now I'm not losing any sleep over that. It's not mm -hmm. going to impact me as an investor. What is more important, I think, for the general investor out there is to understand a lot of the incumbents are going to make a product that I liken it to, forgive me, Canada, a BlackBerry. They mm -hmm. redesign it, but no one buys it. No one's going to buy this plug-in hybrid because the offering they have by the more progressive companies is far more, has far more cool factor, far more futuristic factor being all electric. And so when you look at the, if we open the book a little bit deeper, how, who's, who's it going to impact, Barry? The winners and losers in this industry. Well, who owns the most real estate with, with respect to the car manufacturers? Which parts, who, who makes only mufflers or only radiators? On the other side, who's going to be making this stuff that's that's more technologically advanced? You know, people have to look at that. If you're an investor, what be it in an, or an endowment, a foundation, whoever, get your analysts to really dig deep on this stuff because it's. I think this is going through a uh, a tectonic shift, and then of course we get to the how do you electrify or fuel these things because that also is going to have a dramatic impact with efficiencies. So let let last few questions on Tesla. How do you enjoy the automatic software updates, which and how significant are those changes to the car itself? For those that are not familiar with how Tesla services their cars, if it's not a mechanical problem, what they do, you have full-time internet on the car. While you're sleeping, you get a download of the new software. The operating system. Gizmo or, or whatever gadget that they've added to the car. It happens remotely. It's incredible. They'll, you just wake up in the morning and there's a you, new you've, you've module. Got, you've got this update and it tells you exactly what you got. And also with the respect to the car I have, which is auto has autopilot. So mm -hmm. it's one of these ones that when you get on the freeway and you're, you're doing a long trip, let's say you're driving from, we're going from here to Washington, DC. Mm -hmm. Once we're on the freeway, I put it into autopilot. I tell it how many cars of safety I would like. And it just drives. You're, you're hands-free, uh -huh. you're pedal-free, so you have a lot less so fatigue it's when you stopping, arrive. So stopping, driving, going, stopping, going, and steering on the highway. Everything, including stop and go traffic. If you end up in a jam, it'll stop, it'll just keep, you know, inching along with traffic, it'll, and it'll ramp up to speed, and you get there, you're way less fatigued, but more importantly, it's way safer. The, the, the ability, if, you know, God forbid that you end up preventing someone, which is, it happens in the world, that's what, those are the most common accidents, that should pretty much go away if you've engaged this autopilot feature. So it's words, a lot the normal, safer. The normal distractions that lead to a person to, I, I just saw one uh, the yeah, other day on They look at the radio, and, they drop their right, they just phone, add, whatever. Bang. Or, uh, this now can, can do this pretty much on highways. How far is it before this can do this like the Google cars anywhere? Well, it works even in the city. What it what it doesn't do right now is to leave a parking space, navigate red lights and turn, you know, all that kind of stuff and, and arrive to another parking space. That's what is going to be the full autonomous driving. That's the next wave, which it doesn't keep me up at night. I'm not even really too concerned about that. It's uh, something that's for, you know, and speaking from an investor, I mean, what is it five, seven, 10 years down the road? Maybe it's not going to impact my, uh, my portfolio decisions today. Hmm, interesting. All right. So beyond Tesla, let's talk a little bit about uh, some of the questions we we didn't get to. Um, uh, the charging stations, the network of charging stations, uh, how, how was that put into place so quickly, so effectively? And what are the costs to the Tesla owners for, for doing these chargings? For the first generation of us Tesla buyers, it's free, life mm -hmm. of the car. 
So Tesla Corporation has baked that into the price of the car. And they effectively built this network of superchargers, which is a reasonable distance connecting all the major cities in America today. Mm -hmm. And it works with these, um, a white box. It's about five feet tall, about a foot wide. And it, it's made in a central factory. They ship them out to electrical contractors around the nation. They procure real estate at shopping centers or restaurants or what have you between all these cities. And they implement the charging system. They wire them up and they're doing them at a very quick rate. There's some many thousands of them already. These are the superchargers or the regular chargers? The superchargers. And the There's... supercharger enables you to top up the car to about 80% in 30 minutes which is all you need. Because if you're going from city to city, you just need to make it to the next supercharger with mm -hmm. a bit of a buffer if, if, if the car sure. needs to be cool, air cooled or heated. And that's all you care about. And it does this flawlessly. I went the entire trip. I did not have one issue. California is a little bit of traffic though. Sometimes you can see these stations full of Teslas, people there oh, really? charging their car, but it's easy to so duplicate. you may actually wait for a, a charger. I, I never waited, but you could see that they're full. The, the good news is the, the electricians of America can keep building out these things. If you have right. a particularly busy station, more chargers. What's the software like? Does it, it tells you where it is? Does it tell you, hey, this is full? Is it is it that advanced? Or it just says, here's the next charger and here you have enough juice to get there. Oh, it's it's that advanced. It tells you exactly what you have. What kind of, what kind of services are there? Maybe you want to go to a different one because it has the, the restaurant or coffee shop that you like. It tells you if it's full. Of all these things, it tells you the the amount of miles to get there, how much juice you're going to have left when you arrive, and of course the next destination. Because sometimes you don't have to wait thirty minutes; it might only be ten minutes, so you can get to your destination mm -hmm. and then charge there. So that is the superchargers. But then people probably also want to know, what about when I'm not traveling city to city? Let's say I'm just a I, I drive twenty miles a day. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I I, I commute around the city. How, how how does that change? Well. How often do you drive more than 250 miles in a day in your own city? Almost never. I don't. I don't know many people that do that. This is a. This is a. You know, very rare. But less than one percent of the population. Do you sleep every day? Of course. So do I. Fantastic. I do the charging while I'm sleeping. And if you live in a, a dual tariff area, mm -hmm. meaning meaning electricity's cheap at night when you're sleeping and it's expensive ah. at five o'clock. Well, I'm not going to charge my car at five o'clock when everyone's cooking dinner because the utility says it's half price if you. Do it at 10 o'clock at night. Can you program the charger to, to say, char charge this from two to four in the morning or whatever it is? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there comes a whole nother level of, of infrastructure, of software, of convenience, of design with making the charging lifestyle better. Mm -hmm. Location-wise, you know, you're going to be everywhere you go now because I keep telling people you, you already can connect lifestyle point A to B. You know, in, every, in almost every city in America. So if you go to the gym, you go to the grocery store, you're going to Long Island, wherever, to, to the Hamptons, whatever you're doing, when you drive 60 or 70 miles, you can now replace that because the, the, the quicker destination chargers are at a rate of about 47 miles for each hour that you're charging. That's, that's, that's what you get tanking up, if you will. Mm -hmm. So it, um, it's... And so these destination chargers, there are how many of these out and about? Although they're probably in the millions already. Oh, that many? They used to cost $1,500. Now they cost $500. You go to Tesla, they, they'll sell it to you. And it takes an electrician three, four, five hours to install. That sounds you, like a lot. I, I would imagine it's even less than that these days. You usually put it close to the electrical service box. Mm -hmm. And so I tell people that 
there are about a million electricians in America. Uh-huh. If they each installed, you know, 10 Ten. in a year, can we do that? Yeah. Well, that's 10 million destination chargers in one year. Who's paying the five grand for that and who pays for the electricity? Well, those are different because now if you're a business, if you own a chain of hotels, I would say you must have destination charging. Is it two? Is it four? Is it 10? We'll see how busy you, it mm-hmm. gets for your business. But we, you, you won't even be asking for it. If you don't have it, you're going to become a relic. Uh, you'll, you'll lose that audience. At least you'll lose that today. Exactly. And, and it, that's the, it, that's the small investment, small investment. It's no different than a hotel offering internet. You know, right. 20 years ago, you thought about it today. It's an automatic it's and it will right. be every business. It'll be across the board and it won't be a shopping center. It won't be two of them. You're going to see a bank of, you know, 30, 40, 50 of these chargers that cater to all the electric cars that are coming. So let's talk a little bit about some other, other things that we missed before. Tell me about the new spending class. What is the new spending class? The new spending class is an army of consumers that they're not the so-called USA middle-class wealthy. You know, they don't make $50,000 a year, but they have the same economic footprint that you and I have. So they basically, they watch television every day. They drive a car, they have air conditioning, they eat deluxe meals, which means those meals need to be grown and delivered. And they outnumber us by a margin. We all heard the term emerging markets. Mm-hmm. Well, 25 years later, more people have emerged than those that are still left so-called emerging. But what do we call them? We don't have a phrase for these people. I call them the new spending class. So they're not rich, they're not poor, but we have to follow their spending patterns. And of course, the the biggest group, which is the biggest demographic group in the world, which is the, that massive population of China, I, I use that as the example that weaves its way through my book over and over and over. And we look at them the demographics of China in four major blocks. And the biggest one, of course, with the most impact and the most future are the millennials of China. 415 million people. That's amazing. That's 150% of the total population of the U.S. Exactly. And it's, it's their wants and their needs. They have far higher expectations than the generations before them. I know this. Look at the level of enlightenment. The people that run China are those, the children of the Cultural Revolution. Mm-hmm. They're sort of 55 to maybe 70. 160 million people in that demographic block, but only 1 million graduated university. That's amazing. Less than 1%. Less than 1%. These millennials I talk about, this 415 million, over 100 million have already graduated university, typically in science, science technology, engineering, and math, STEM fields. These way higher expectations. The majority of these young people were born rural. The majority now live urban. And what do they want? They want everything you and I have. In fact, they know how the world works. They have an internet connection. I mean, these people are not ignorant to the to the comfort, convenience, communication that everyone wants and everyone is taking for granted. And we've seen this in their in their spending patterns and in how their future is changing. And it's happening so fast. It's not even five-year blocks. You have to be aware, hyper-aware of this stuff in sort of two-year blocks. It's being turned top to bottom. So you've, you've spent quite a bit of time in China. What what cities have you spent time in over there? I traveled, I've been to China a, a couple times, and I traveled the country by train. So rather mm-hmm. than fly city to city, I thought it was important to sort of see the landscape mm-hmm. and understand how, what does it look the like? The scale. And although I've seen a lot of China, I've, I've you know, 
visited a lot of the country. I've been there a couple of times. What have I seen of it? Nothing. I mean, it's the same size as America, mm-hmm. right? So to really understand it and go to all the, the those, those those other places, it'll take me a lot longer. I'm going to be going again due to the book. We're, we're taking the book into the Chinese language. But the, the one thing that I will tell you is that the Chinese population, they are optimists. They're speculators. And by disposition, what do, what do these people think? They, the future is going to be better. They're not pessimistic. They're, they don't have this, you know, you know, beaten down sort of like a salary stagnation that we've had in, you know, in Europe and the West. And it's, it's, it's just incredible to the, the human potential of what's going on, not just in China, but in emerging markets in general is, is just a staggering sort of, um, well, they're closer to that zero bound level than they are to the, we peaked and we've gone plateaued. So to them, the, the direction is it's heading the right, right way. People who experience that peak and plateau, you could see why there's a little, uh, concern and worry. Hey, how come, uh, Although it does seem to be very cyclical. We we had that in the 70s and 80s, and now we're having it again in the 2000s. We'll see if this goes away and comes back um, in another 20 years. Tell us about the ghost cities of China, and why do you think uh, there was a big 60 Minutes piece and a number of other things. Why do you think that concern is uh, unnecessary? Well, it is important. We can't you know, just dismiss it for nothing. But China has many different tiers of big cities. So you've got the tier one cities, which are the big, you know, 20 million people living in them. Uh, Tier two, which might be five to 10 million. And then we have the tier three and tier four cities. This is, there's been some situations of ghost cities, which which do exist. If you build it, they will come. This is, we have to forget that China is a planned economy. Are there examples in the country of China where they've built a city that should house a million people for their distant future? And maybe it's not full yet. Yeah, I, I, I would imagine that they're, that's what they're doing. I look at this 415 million millennials. They're all under the age of 35, Barry. Most of these people do not yet, you know, have their own home. That's coming. Where are they all going to live? You know, this, this will get take this will get resolved in the course of time. And a lot of it is function of price. These things are a lot cheaper, they're, they're discounted. But if you pe- speak to people that own, uh, you know, vast real estate portfolios in China, you know, the richest man in China, the, 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 the Dailan Wanda group, which has the biggest balance sheet, if you will, he looks at the debt levels, governmental debt levels and tier one, tier two city debt levels. Mm-hmm. He, he is not concerned. Okay, he lives in China and he's not gonna sit there and bash the system and bash the government. But, you know, he is concerned a little bit about tier three and tier four cities. It has to get worked through the system. Will the, if I liken it to America, will the Kalamazoo's and the Tallahassee's of China bring down the system? That's the question investors have to ask. In the short term, anything can happen. And when I follow this stuff, which I follow China like a financial soap opera, I'm not necessarily continuing, you know, to read the people that agree with me. I read the Kyle Basses. I read the Jim Chanos of the world. What am I missing? Anything can happen in the short term. I just, I am not concerned about the Chinese economy in the medium to long run. I, I just am not. I, it, it, facts can change and we'll see what happens. We have to liken the the economy to the stock market and it is becoming overwhelmingly a consumer society based on services. So let me shift gears up a little bit on you. Um, you talk about, you are the founder of the CO2 Master Solutions Partnership. What is that? This was a, 
a think tank of a, a group of guys that I that I associate with and deal with about looking at these challenges and opportunities, burning a lot of shoe leather. We have been talking with endowments and foundations, and now it's becoming a vehicle for us to invest in all the elements that factually make the reduction in CO2 emissions possible. What does that include? Well, this has to be a strategy that's a lot, that's ambivalent. So it, it basically, if you look at a typical portfolio construction, first I will, I will preface it by saying we've always followed these things, the things I'm going to talk about now. We're not getting into this because it's popular or themic. You know, we've done, you know, I've got 20 years of experience. My partner, Matt Zablowski, has got uh, 15 years of experience looking at these things. So let's look at a typical portfolio construction, subliminal ideas for people to look at within reduction of CO2 emissions. Well, first of all, it's the building blocks that make it possible, right? So we look at that. We're not going to invest in coal and, and oil, but we are going to look at things like, uh, like copper. That's important, the fabrication of it. We're going to look at the automotive industry. You know, there's basically the, the winners and losers there. So there's there's the lazy incumbents and then there's the progressive incumbents. You look at a country like Germany, all the people that feed into the parts that feed into the, the automotive industry. How's that going to change? You've got dozens of private and public companies that make cranks, pistons, radiators, valves, mufflers. That industry is changing. We look at the technologies that make this future energy economy possible. Right, and that's people that look at how do you, how do you charge a car, how do you manufacture them, how are we going to sell them. We look at the creation, transfer, and utilization of energy in general. It's changing, so far deeper than just investing in a solar company or in a wind company. Let's look at the gizmos, products, and, and fabrication, the gearing that makes that stuff possible. Because if they're going to be busier, it's good. How do we desalinate water? Who's going to do it? What are the components made to make that possible? The Staticville, which is the this vast network of pipelines, railroads, and distribution of, of, of electricity, tectonic shift again, tectonic shift. So we're looking at all the components that make that possible. And of course, we get into the, just the general utilization of energy. So it's, it's a vast sort of uh, arena that we're looking at understanding and investing in. So it, it's more than just the think tank. It's a private investment partnership that you are looking to take advantage of, climate, of of the changes that are taking place in, in the global uh, climate, global world, and basically global world, is that a phrase? In the global environmental world and make informed investments based on what you see as the, the next coming trends. Yeah, the, as I call it, the algebra in the this shift in energy away from fossil fuels we understand fossil fuels are important, but there is a shift happening. You can argue, is it happening fast or slow, but it is happening. And we're looking at the other side of that algebraic equation. And we want to understand and support, and of course, invest in those products, uh, materials, and building blocks. And Makes sense. So let's jump into our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, we went over your background. Uh, tell me a little bit about some of your early mentors. Who, who influenced your thought process who, who led you to this uh, career path? Yeah, I was a very curious person. And I always surrounded myself with, uh, you know, father figure types of guys. And we're very lucky in Vancouver. There's a lot of um, influential sort of um, guru types in, in the themes that I follow. Mm -hmm. And unlike, and I, I may liken this to the software industry, where it's hard to get access to the CEOs. Let's mm -hmm. say it's hard to get access to Larry Ellison or 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 Elon Musk. In our industry in Vancouver, it's actually 
you, you can actually rub shoulders with these guys. And if you, I was a young guy that was very curious and I, I put a lot of effort into it and I was able to sort of surround myself with these people like uh, in, in, in these industries. And then we would travel together. We would go to conferences and, you know, 10 years of dinners later, you, you consider yourself friends and, and mentors and, and sort of you take their collective experience and you put it into your own sort of um, path. And now that I'm, I'm 41 years old now, so I'm sort of uh, starting to mentor some younger people myself. So what about investors out there who have uh, tread the path before you? What investors did you find influential to your uh, uh, thought process? I always love the wisdom of Warren Buffett. You can, you can lose yourself in Warren Buffett's sort of readings and videos and such. And a lot of people have followed him, of course, because he, he's just, he's able to tell a story in such plain English, you know? So I think you can still, for those that have not enjoyed his wisdom, I mean, just go to YouTube and, and you can lose yourself for hours and sort of his, uh, his philosophies. Reading some of the books from before that, you know, like Ben Graham, of course, a famous value investor and sort of just that plain street common sense, you know, that works. And um, Napoleon Hill and those books, they're, they're just How timeless. How to Think and Grow Rich, is that right? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're just timeless. They're just totally, they're absolutely timeless. So I'm going to ask you, let, let's jump into the next question. What are some of your favorite books? And that could be fiction, nonfiction. And within the nonfiction, it could either be technology or investment related or anything else. I don't want you to feel constrained. Tell me about what, what books you found most influential. Let, let's talk about Napoleon Hill. Um, what, did you, what was your takeaway from Think and Grow Rich? Well, I think the, that, as I said already, the, that common, that, that street common sense, you know, where you have to, and you, you also factor in psychology and, and just basic practices that help your business. And it, the book is a, is a quick read for anyone that hasn't read it yet. They, very they, short, very fast. And you can reread it probably every couple of years on mm -hmm. summer vacation. Right now, this, my summer read this year is going to be a book by um, Mr. McCullough, which is... Um, the Wright Brothers. Not that one. I'm reading an older one. That's my next one. But it's the um, mornings on mornings mornings on horseback, which is the book mm -hmm. on the young Teddy Roosevelt, mm -hmm. who is an incredible character. I don't know anyone who has read one of the McCullough biographies and doesn't come away just wow. This was a fantastic. The research, book. the research, the storytelling, and I'm I'm just breaking that one, and I'm I'm really looking forward to that. And I'll probably have that read in the first three or four days of my vacation coming up. A book I also recently read was was a Walter Isaacs and Steve Jobs, which is now the best-selling uh, biography, I think, in history. Is that true? I had no idea. What a book. What a book. The storytelling. I actually met Walter Isaacson when he came to Vancouver in his book series. My friend mm -hmm. uh, was, was sponsored it, so we uh, were able to enjoy a dinner with him talking about some of the, uh, the stories uh, around making that book. Yeah, Jobs reached out to him and said, I, I, listen, I want you to write my biography. Who, who does something like that? Yeah, he originally was a little reluctant. It's a great book for anyone that wants to understand that that iconic, you know, Americana, which is Apple and all that, the history and a lot of the characters that were involved. Uh, one of my friends, Robert Friedland, uh, is featured in the book. He was the guy with the Apple farm in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And he was the guy that uh, they, Walter Isaacson would say it taught or showed Steve Jobs that reality distortion field. And if anyone has seen Robert Friedland give a talk, you see it. I mean, he's just a captivating public speaker, an amazing storyteller. And then, which is the same with, with Steve Jobs and so what, what he was able to do. When I was almost finished the book, Barry, I, I saved the last 40 pages and it took me three months. I put it on the shelf and I just waited. And, you know, I read that last 40 pages. It was just, um, 
again, I, I just, you don't want that book to end. It was, it was really interesting. There were a number of books that have come out since then, sort of uh, telling, a, telling a different version of the story, including a few Apple-authorized biographies. I, I thought the book was um, harsh but fair. Is that, a, is that a good way to describe it? He, he's a mercurial, difficult character, uh, but it seemed like he, it was a very fair conversation. If there was any criticism, it's a little technology light. It's about Steve Jobs, the person, not Steve Jobs, the technologist, uh, which is is kind of interesting. Give me one more book. What else? What else uh, have you read that really was influential to you? When I was around twenty years old, and probably the reason I I, I wrote my book the way it is, there's a Canadian book it was written by uh, David Chilton. It's called The Wealthy Barber. That book sold two million copies in Canada. To give you, is it a good book? Well, two the million Wealthy people. Barber, and it's. It's a it's a simple book about a barber who's wealthy and his his, pay, or his clients come in to cut their hair and he gives them investment advice, just plain plain straight common sense stuff. Now the book w- was around the days of eight and ten percent interest, so those days mm-hmm. are gone. You can't just do that. The, the power of compound interest doesn't work anymore in in this interest rate environment, which is a different discussion <laughs> for a different day. But the but the the way that book is written, I think it's fun and it was uh, one of those early personal finance books that I uh, read that I, I just love. And I recommend that, it to any young person, any millennial out there, you want to read that book because it gives you a good foundation. There, there are a run of parable books like that. The Wealthy Barber, um, The Richest Man in Babylon is another similar book. And there's one other, I'm trying to remember the most recent um, version of that sort of paradox. that I, I have it out there. I read it recently. I'm trying to remember the title. I'll, I'll dig it up. Um all right, so so beyond books, what what ch- has changed since you've become uh, a venture investor? What do you think is is the most significant positive and negative changes that that you've witnessed over the past decade? It's harder to be a stock picker. You know, if we look at all the click trading that takes place in the world, people buy ETFs now, Barry. Mm-hmm. You know, if you look at the the graph on who used to be their own personal stock picker and what was an ETF. I mean, you know, you interviewed the king of ETFs yourself mm-hmm. and it's all, it's went now to basically people buy ETFs. So you get volatility with that because with click trading, you, you dump positions, you know, just, just sporadically. So it's, it's a lot Meaning harder. you sell an ETF and you're essentially dumping a hundred stocks or 500 stocks. Exactly. Stocks. And then when then people do it, the psychology of the market comes in, you get the greed and greed, very powerful emotion. Uh, we, we've seen the, the, the Dow came off a thousand points here, you know, just uh, after the Brexit. You know, and that's, mm-hmm. it's a fear trade. And so I think it's harder to be a stock picker, you know, to re- to find deep value and to have disproportionate benefit. So you need to be, as a money manager, I think you need to be long and short. It's, it's very hard to be long only. And one of my, one of my mentors in Germany told me, he says, when the, me and traditionally I'm a value investor, so I am long only. And he says, the difference between people like you and me, he says, I make money every day. I don't care if the market's going up or down. I just, I, I just need to be right more times than I'm wrong. And he says, you, you have to, you wait and wait. And I said, the way my heart beats, I'm okay with that. I want to find deep value. I want to get behind. I have conviction. Long as I'm not wrong. Cause you also have to admit when the facts change, so should you, if you're wrong, get off the trade, you know, but typically I have a window of maybe one to five years. I want to get behind a theme and, uh, and ride that pony all the way. So. What do you see as some of the next major shifts taking place in in, in that space, either in, in 
public markets or or venture investing? Well, let's talk about the the largest traded commodity in the world. Let's talk about oil, which is a huge market. And it's going through a tectonic shift. And let me just give people some anecdotal information for those that are not energy experts. We use today 96 million barrels a day demand. And if you look at the prognosticators and you ask them 15 years ago or 10 years ago, how much oil are we going to use in the future? All the charts end up going Straight into the up. future to about 120 million barrels a day, 130, 115 in the future. Maybe not. The way we use oil is so fundamentally changed. We are now things that you consume of this 96 million barrels a day. There are, there are applications that are going to go to zero oil consumption, zero adoption. Five million barrels a day is used to make electricity on islands around the world. You look at the, the, the fines that were levied three weeks ago by the European Union of all the lorry, the, tr the, 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 the semi-truck the manufacturers, mm -hmm. billions of dollars because their efficiencies did not go down in 25 years. In four years, Barry, they're going to use 25% less fuel. Is that, that's is a, that that's due a to line efficiency? What is, the, uh, what is the key factor? It's a two-prong effect. For, they're making them change the shape of the trucks, so they're going to be aerodynamic. European semi-trucks, as everyone knows, have that big square, very unaerodynamic shape. That will, uh, that will go to be an aerodynamic shape, which will have... We've, we've seen a lot of adaptations to... Here, here we have it, not in Europe, though. Oh, really? Not in Europe. You would think the gasoline is so much more expensive there. That would be a... And, uh, for that'll sure. be an automatic. I'm actually looking for something right now as we're as we're talking about it, but I'm not. Uh, but I'm not. So, seeing so it. that's going to change. And then we look at the 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 automobiles that are used 18 hours a day, mm -hmm. which is taxis not not you and I. And taxis, the deliveries. urban transports, buses. The world's largest automobile market, which is China. Boy, this that industry is changing in the next four or five years. It's a line item. So we're, conclusively, we're gonna, we're going to use less oil. If people talk about the fracking revolution in the United States. Mm -hmm. So we know that the drill rigs went from about 200 to 1600 in four years. And what happened is we ended up having almost 6 million barrels of new production. This is unprecedented. And then you look at it, well, what about the demand side? Because the world's growing and there's India and all these other places. Let's look at the fastest growing energy market in history, China. It took them 15 years to have 5 million barrels of new demand. So this, this revolution of how we extract oil Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not offset by demand. It's slowing down. We used to grow by three, 4% a year, annual oil demand. We're coming in. It's, it's barely growing. It's maybe a percent. What about the concept? And I, uh, I'm trying to remember which Saudi King said this. Um, and the quote is, you know, you Americans waste oil using it as a fuel, meaning its real value is in the materials world and as a basis for plastics, plastics and polymers yeah. and what have you. Uh, how much of a demand for oil exists on not on the energy side but on the material side, and what does that mean going going forward? Yeah, that's gonna. That, there is demand for that, obviously, to make plastics and, and certain products. We we use petroleum, you know, the, the petroleum industry, but that's not the lion's share of where oil is consumed. Oil is consumed in mode of transportation and it's changing. And we saw the oil price collapse in the past 18 months because of a 2 million barrel a day shift dis displacement, too much supply. Right. So if I'm talking about all these things I just talked about, I'm talking about a displacement of two, three, four, five million barrels a day in the next two, five, 10, 15 years. Well, and then at the same time you can extract more oil. I, I like to tell people that of the six or seven factors that can influence the price of oil, 
I think that that industry, the oil industry, relies overweight now on toxic geopolitics because there's always, it could be 20, 30, maybe $40 of, of politics in a barrel of oil. If things uh-huh. go awry in a really sensitive oil environment, you should have or you could have uh, an increase in oil prices. It does not rely on fundamentals anymore because across the board, innovation, adoption, technology, we are going to use in the future less oil. My friend Gary Schilling has a $10 a barrel price target. I don't, I don't really do price targets. But that certainly gets your attention. Uh, uh, Long term, he's in the same camp as you. Hey, this uh, as an energy source, it certainly, if it's not a twilight industry, it certainly has peaked. And as we see more Teslas and more uh, electrical adaptation, there's going to be less and less uh, oil consumption. Even if we continue using uh, gasoline-powered cars, as they become autonomous, they're going to become so much more fuel efficient than us humans are are driving it, it it's gotta take a huge bite out of the total demand that's out there yeah and they're gonna they're gonna be electric even if let's let's assume right now we don't sell one electric car we're gonna we're gonna sell more cars in the future more people consuming more things we can all agree to that but cars are mandated here in the United States to go from about 28, 29 miles a gallon to 54 miles a gallon by 2025. That's the fleet sales for all of GM, all of Mercedes, all of Toyota. Their entire fleet has to hit those average. But do you use more or less oil in that atmosphere? Clearly much less. Thank you. If the, the lorry manufacturers of Europe are going to have to have 25% more efficiency between now and 2020, are they going to use more or less oil in that atmosphere? Got to be less. If, we, if half the islands around the world that make electricity from bunker start using... Bunker being... Diesel. Uh-huh. Cheap, cheap diesel to make electricity. Are we going to, you know, it's, it's basic arithmetic. The ships around the world are becoming more efficient. I mean, just in the past 12 years, Barry, the average airplane and car is about 25, 30% more fuel efficient. Now, the trucks are coming next because the number they just got the wrist slapped the, three weeks ago, the, the, mm-hmm. the, these charge collusion charges have went, went against them, which is why they too have a siren uh, on that program. And then, of course, the granddaddy of them all, urban transport, buses that operates, you know, 16, 18 hours a day. They're going electric. Now, we don't have to focus about the small markets that, are, that aren't uh, approaching this from a progressive point of view. We have to go to the world's largest market, which is doing this very quickly. So our final two uh, questions, our favorite questions. First, uh, if a millennial or recent college graduate came up to you and asked for some career advice, what would you tell them? Well, let's, let's pretend they're my brother's children. So I really, I really admire this millennial I'm talking to. I would take them by the hand and I would sit down and I would really explain fundamentally how energy is the umbilical cord of human progress, how it's changing, how we create, transfer, and utilize that energy. Of course, they'll come to the conclusion that it's all electricity. And I would say, open up your mind. Maybe it's electrical design. Maybe it's engineering. Maybe it's the software technology. But you need to embrace that. You need to have, you need to know the fundamentals. If you cut all this stuff in half, this green energy that so many young people want, if you cut it in half, you need to know how it works, how it functions, how can you make it better? And maybe, just maybe, those people can change the world. We need to inspire a generation of young people, Barry, to go to university with pride and take science, technology, engineering, and math, like so many other people around the world. That's the advice I would give a millennial. And our final question, what is it that you know about 
technology, energy, venture investing today that you wish you knew 15 years ago? I wish I had a degree in psychology because it makes you understand markets so much more. You know, these emotions of fear and greed, you know, this, this euphoria that hits markets when you think you're a genius because you're making money and the stocks you chose are all going higher. No, if you understood psychology, you, 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 it, it's going to help you as an investor. So if I, if I knew more, and I, I do study this stuff now just as a passive sort of uh, fan of, uh, of, of how markets are so, I don't want to use the word manipulated, but moved. Driven. Driven by, by emotion. If you understood that better, you're going to have, you're going to add a few percentage points to your performance every year. Gianni, this has been terrific. Thank you for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Gianni Kovacevic, author of My Electrician Drives a Porsche, investing in the rise of the new spending class. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch, and you could see any of the other 97 or so uh, such conversations we've had. I know this sounds like a conversation just between two people, but a team of folks helped put this together. Uh, Taylor Riggs is our scheduler slash booker. Charlie Vollmer is our producer. Mark is our recording engineer. Mike Batnick is the head of research, and you're going to actually, uh, I need you to sign this book to Mike Batnick, who gave you a fantastic review on Amazon. Um, so before I forget, I have to have you sign a book for him. Uh, thank you for everybody for helping make this program uh, such a delight to do and to listen to. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by BASF. We create chemistry.